Welcome to Gerstl's LabWorks True Podcast, the show about analytical chemistry, interesting instruments, and the challenging analytical problems that they solve. A very warm welcome to this episode of the Gerstl LabWorks Podcast. And today we have an interview session. And before we come to our very special guest today, I, of course, introduce... Um, my co-host, Kurt Sexton. Hello, Kurt. Uh, hello, Jan. Hi, everyone. Good to be back today. Really excited. Today, we have Dr. Mark Jordy from Jordy Labs talking. Uh, he's got a whole number of really cool things to talk about. Uh, you can read uh, about Dr. Jordy's background in the show notes, but he's here. He's live. We can, we can let uh, Mark talk about himself. So, so Mark, please jump in. Tell, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at Jordy Labs. Sure, Kurt. Well, thank you, uh, first off, for the invitation of being with you today. Uh, so at Geordi Labs, uh, we do a wide variety of analyses, but I would say that they fall into two primary categories. Um, the first would be investigative analysis, which is something that I've been doing now for over 25 years. And, and really, it's a lot of fun. Uh, you get to figure out what is coming out of a material. Uh, you get to solve problems for people. Uh, and you get to do a lot of diverse, diverse work, which uh, I thoroughly enjoy. I like solving new problems, um, and so does my team. And then uh, our second main area is regulatory support. And we do a lot of in extractables, leachables work uh, to help support the safety of medical devices and pharmaceutical packaging. And that work is also very challenging and very interesting. I think it's actually one of the hardest analytical problems you could ever try to solve. And uh, maybe as we go along, I'll talk a little bit about why I think that, but, um, but uh, two very challenging analytical problems. And uh, we've had a lot of fun tackling these using some of the different Gerstle, uh adaptations that you guys provide. And so uh, happy to be with you today. Yeah, thanks for and thanks for being here. Actually, the extractable usable stuff is how I got to know you in the first place because we were doing E and L work here, and everyone said, "Hey, if you want to know how to do this, uh, call, call Mark because he does all this all the time." So, and you're right, it is challenging. A lot of it's non-targeted work, and the, the non-targeted work, the investigative industrial forensic stuff, which is where I got my background in. Yeah, it's also also a big deal. So, yeah, you've done some cool stuff in E and L. Um, maybe you want to want to jump in with that. Sure. Yeah. So um, we got started in extractables and leachables uh, before it was called that. Uh, it was probably about 15 years ago that we began to do this work. And we had clients call us and say, hey, I make a medical device and I just want to know what comes out of it and what goes into the, the human body. This was an, an implantable device at the time. And um, so we said, well, that's an interesting problem. <clears throat> and I'd be fascinated to figure that out. So let's go ahead and, and analyze it. And again, this was before any guidance documents existed. So I, I like to call it the Wild West uh, because you kind of just went at it as you could, you know, and said, how can I figure out what's coming out of this material? So we extracted the device in some different solvent media and we began to characterize those solutions using a variety of techniques, things like LCMS, GCMS, Headspace. Um, and And as you said, Kurt, it's... Uh, it's really a no holds barred, unknown identification problem because you you don't know what you're going to find. And, uh, you know, today we, we put a lot of effort into uh, looking at what are the materials of construction prior to starting an analysis because you can get a lot of good 
help in figuring out a good strategy if you know what you're looking for, obviously. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you don't always know what's going to come out of a medical device. And people are still surprised uh, at some of the chemicals that we find. And, um, you know, we'll we'll be looking at that material of construction and saying, oh, it's a silicone polyurethane. You know, why are we finding this particular uh, small molecule? And later on, sometimes it'll make sense if you dig down far enough. Um, but you got to have a very broad screening method, something that can catch anything because you really don't know what's going to come out. Yeah, and you'd be really non-selective. I mean, I, I didn't. One of the reasons that I think we always got along so well, I didn't do ENL, but I did food migration out of food packaging. And it's it's ironically, so FDA does them both, right? Um, but FDA, you know, there's one set of rules for tractables and leachables, another set of rules for my food migration. But the underlying test is the same. I mean, there's a simulant. You take this device, you simulate, in this case, human blood, if it's uh, something going into somebody's arm or or, or in my case, I used to work for a very large paper company, so we would simulate orange juice and milk all the time. So, and then you, then you go digging in the simulant, trying to find anything you can get, and you it's challenging because you need to be able to see everything. So it's a non-targeted analysis. So you need to have a very universal, even way of looking for things. So it makes it makes it tough and a lot of fun. So. Before we go very deep in, in the analytical chemistry what uh, and what happens there, uh, just a small question from me. How, how big is Jordi Labs now? How many people are working? And, and where are you located? Because that's, that's not mentioned at, uh, at this time. Sure. Um, so Jordi Labs um, is about 70 people at this time. Uh, we're located in Massachusetts. Um, Jordi Labs just by way of the history of the company is a second generation family business. It was founded by my father in 1980. Uh, I purchased the business from him 17 years ago now. And uh, I had the uh, distinct pleasure of sort of growing up at the feet and watching my dad do analytical chemistry and was running instruments at age 14. And, uh, you know, it's one of those, <laughs> those rare things where the son likes what the father does. And it really was a great opportunity. I consider myself extremely blessed to have been able to learn from him. He had 40 years of HPLC chemistry experience and wow. an analytical chemist himself. Um, you know, so it's, it's been a fun journey for sure. Well, yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's really cool. So Kurt, I was just going to mention, I, I appreciated your comment about uh, food contact and migration studies being like ENL. And in fact, when we were first starting out doing ENL, one of the things I did early on was I looked at the food contact guidance because there was guidance for that, but there wasn't any guidance for medical device extractables. And there's actually some really good guidance. Um, and it's kind of a shame that the two fields have not melded, so to speak, and, and learned from each other more. Um, because I think the food content guidance is actually was a little more mature, um, in terms of what it instructed you to do, but you're absolutely right that it's the exact same exercise. Really. You're just trying to figure out what could come out and go into a food and then get injected, ingested by a person versus what could come out of a medical device and wind up in a patient. And really it's kind of the same question overall. And, and the challenges that you face in both those fields are the same too. You get these really nasty matrices like orange juice. And <laughs> you know, in, in the case of <laughs> yep. a medical device, it's, it's tissue, it's blood. Those are horrible matrices, right? Really hard to analyze out of. 
And, um, you know, you end up using simulants because of that. So kind of the first fundamental problem you have is how do I actually replicate this system, this biological system? Mm -hmm. And how do I get a sample that's going to re represent that well? And then secondarily, um, you then get this very difficult unknown problem because it's I have to identify anything that comes out. And that's the same in both fields. And finally, the last part that makes it really challenging is you have to quantify everything. And, and that quant, uh, most times there aren't even standards that you can buy of those chemicals because they're not commercially available. They're not in the material on purpose. There's some kind of degradation or side product or maybe a residual. Um, you know, so really, I, I think one of the things that gets me excited about ENL and gets me up every morning and going when I'm, I'm working on this kind of work is the fact that we get to tackle some of the hardest problems and any progress we make here to me really translates over to all of chemistry because it's basically complete deformulation, identify everything, right. quantify everything. And if you can do that, everything else is easy from there. Yeah. But I was always jealous of you because, okay, the, the two things are related. See, for me, day in and day out, it was a milk carton. <laughs> it was some version of <laughs> some some version of coded paper. Okay, so it wasn't always a milk carton, but you get the idea. It was, it was some kind of you know you had to have got some really cool medical devices and oddball stuff. I mean, there had to have been some really neat stuff like joints and like what all what all have you done? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that comment. Uh, I, I I got to do some popcorn packaging once. That was pretty exciting. <laughs> you know. I, I understand what you're saying. Um, you know, from the medical device perspective, it's more like what haven't we done? Um, we've been really fortunate. And again, one of the things I love about my work is it's highly variable. It's not the same every day by any means. So whether we're talking about implantable devices or externally communicating infusion type devices, or we're looking at, you know, things like uh, artificial hips or hard valves or you name it. I mean, you name it. Um, one of the things I like to say to people when they will apply to work at our company is they'll say, well, what do you do? And I'll say, no, no, no. What don't we do? <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, one day we're working on golf balls and space shuttle tiles and the next day it's hard valves. And it's, it's very interesting from that perspective. And, and, you know, one of the things, again, that gets me really excited is the idea of working on something that brings new technology to market. I love the fact that we get to work on medical devices that have not reached patients yet. And that we know that if we can help solve some of those technical challenges and get the answers to the questions of, is this safe, that patients can benefit from therapies. So, you know, one of mm -hmm. my best days is the day where some difficult uh, problem got solved and we got a device to market and now patients get to benefit. And I wish I could go into the specifics of what some of those are. They're usually covered under NDA, but uh, there's some amazing technology that's out there today that's being developed. And it really gets me excited to see some of it come to market. That sounds too, that sounds a little bit for me to make the world a little bit better. That's really a good job you have. Great. Exactly. Jan. I, you I have that, that same. So the, uh, you have that in common with the food people. Um, the, uh, that's usually under NDA too, or even worse. It just, you know, they, they just don't want to talk about it. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And, and you know, these custom, these custom libraries, <laughs> and I'm, I'm a mass spec person by training. So um, I appreciate all these libraries. And then especially in, in the food migration or tractors and leachables world, there's some of these oddball chemicals. Not only can you not find them, you're not going to find them in a NIST library or a Wiley library. You kind of have to figure this all out yourself. You got to get out the old organic chemistry book and look up fragmentation patterns and bond cleavages and all that stuff. <laughs> so it ends up getting complicated. It's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I agree. It is a lot of fun. And, and, and you make a great point. I mean, one of the most important things we built over the last decades has been the internal library that we have. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've previously identified over 35,000 different species and we've stored all of that in our libraries. Um, and it's hugely beneficial because like you said, a lot of it is going back to first principles. I mean, you will literally sit with the mass mm -hmm. spectrum and you'll say, okay, that one eludes at two minutes. It must be fairly polar. Uh, and not only is it polar, but it's got to have a chromophore because it's got a UV signature. And oh yeah, not only does it have that, but it's got a fragment at 149. That must have a phthalate moiety. Oh, okay. You know, piece it back together. And, and it's, it's a tremendous jigsaw puzzle. And for those people who are of the right turn of mind who enjoy that problem solving day in and day out, it's a fun thing to do. Um, you know, and I think, again, especially when you put it in the context of helping patients at the end of the day. So this is, this is to me why I think extractables and leachables is probably one of the greatest analytical challenges of our time. And it's frankly a very fun problem to work on. So, so sounds really, really interesting. Um, do, do you have an example for a non-extractable and leachable things? What our listeners, from which are not so deep in our in the analytical chemistry, can imagine what what happens or why you you are um, doing that, and then um, why customers from you say, "Hey, Mark, please." investigates something. I don't know what happens there. Is, is there a cool story you can can bring to us? Sure, sure. Yeah, I've got lots of stories uh, because having done this for the last 20 years, uh, <laughs> it seems like every day we see another interesting sample. Um, one of the ones that I personally really enjoyed and it's going to cross over into the food migration space, Kurt, uh, is, um, you know, all of us a while back, we used to make our coffee and and uh, and then they moved to K-cups, right? Everything was K-cups. And mm -hmm. um, as an extractables and leachables chemist, I just had to know. So I said, well, we've got to take a cake cup and figure out what happens when you stick that piece of plastic into my, into my system and you start boiling hot water through it. I wanted to know, did anything come out and go into my coffee in the morning? Um, because I just had this suspicion that we might find a few things. So we went ahead and did a, uh, a case study and um, we used the coffee maker. We made uh, the, the, um, the, the product. And then we analyzed it to figure out what things had extracted from the plastic that were present in the K cup as compared to just looking at regular coffee in the grinds. And, uh, if you want to know what chemicals came out, you have to go to my website and you have to look at the case study we have on there, uh, because we did find some things and, uh, you know, it, it was kind of an interesting, um, study that showed us that, you know, everything we use, every material we contact, it, it gives off a signature. And so one of the things that another aspect of my work that I enjoy is the idea that if we learn enough about this kind of science, we can make better decisions about how to package food, how to build medical devices yep. so that less exposure happens with patients and with just the general population. And, you know, there's so many things that we look out to today and that are hard to understand, um, you know, even the amount of sickness that we see. And I, I like the idea that if we can learn more about this, maybe we can mitigate some of that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. You know, people don't realize, um, sometimes they think chemicals are something that you find in a glass vial. Um, especially in flavored fragrance. I, I know my, a lot of people in my family were shocked to find out that, Oh, I mean, blueberry flavor, that's a chemical. I'm like, yep, yes, it is. <laughs> Your entire body's still full of them. Mm -hmm. One of my, one of the guys I used to work with years back said that, Hey, it's either a bad sample or a good lunch. 
which I always thought was a funny way to look at it. <laughs> pretty, pretty accurate. So, but yeah, you've, you've done a lot of interesting stuff. Now, about a year ago, you wound up getting uh, a gristle pyrolyzer. What are you doing with that now? I mean, I know it's, it's a loaded question, audience. I kind of already know, but I wanted to give Mark a chance to talk about it. Sure. Yeah. So um, we did get that system and, you know, we use that for a variety of different purposes. But one of the main things I like to do with it is the formulation work where I can figure out, uh, you know, someone will have a material, maybe they'll like the properties of it, but they won't know what it is. And they will then ask us to analyze it to help them figure yeah. out which plastic is in there. I, I would say that uh, a pyrolysis, in my opinion, is the preeminent tool for identification of plastics. I don't think there's anything that yep. is as good in general for telling you which kind of plastic you have in an object. Um, you know, Kurt, one of the other interesting problems we solved with the, the pyrolyzer was um, one of our clients was manufacturing a plastic um, uh, product. And in their facility, there was some off-gassing going on and, and people could smell a smell. And so they were scared naturally. What is this smell? This is new. We're not used to this. Mm -hmm. So um, we did some pyrolysis work where we basically, it was really more desorption, but we we set the pyrolyzer to um, off-gas that material just like it would happen during the production by using the same temperature range that happened during the manufacturing. Mm -hmm. And we were able to identify mm -hmm, what mm -hmm. those chemicals were and show that they're really not toxic and that it was, you know, yeah, your nose is an, a, a tremendous tool, right? You can you can smell things in the low PPB range. That doesn't always mean there's a, a concern there. And we're kind of able to allay everyone's fears uh, so that the um, process could continue without concern. And so those are just a couple of the examples of the things that we do uh, with the pyrolysis unit. Yeah, we, um, we had a similar experience. It, it's, it's funny. Sometimes the smell has nothing to do with the function, right? So we had some copy paper once that smelled really bad. It was run through a high-speed copying machine. It smelled like cat urine. Um, we were able to track that down to a non-toxic <laughs> sulfur compound, uh, as you can likely imagine. But uh, yeah, I mean, did it, did it affect the function of the paper? No. Did anyone get sick and die from it? No. Did people stop buying millions of dollars of paper because it smelled like cat urine? Yes. <laughs> so so you know, a lot of these off-odor things, a lot of these things are really challenging. You know, um, one of the things we also have in common, but you and your work, and because we're Gerstel and a German company that looks at beer a lot, uh, beer is another one of those great places where you wind up with these off flavors that, again, they don't necessarily kill you, but people don't necessarily like those things. Yeah, absolutely. And um it's funny you mentioned that because we also did do some studies in that area. Specifically, we had a, a, a situation where there was a, a beer with an off flavor and we wanted to figure out what was going on there. And so we um, we did, in that case, uh, some dynamic headspace. And, you know, one of the reasons mm -hmm. that I was originally attracted to the Gerstle platform and not just to, to plug it here, but to, to honestly say why I went this way was that um, there's a, such a diversity of tools that we could bring to bear. And because we get yep. such a diversity of problems, we really need that. And so, um, you know, whether it's static headspace, dynamic headspace, twister, speamy, pyrolysis, I mean, I often say to my team, you know, a sample prep is the unsung hero of analytical chemistry. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't analyze it if you can't get it in. And um, not everything's in a liquid. So, you know, um, having the different <laughs> yep. tools that allow me to analyze a solid directly, such as I was doing in the case of the pyrolyzer, is a huge step forward in terms of solving the problem. Um, you know, in the case of the, the beer sample, as I mentioned, 
uh, being able to flow a gas across the surface of that sample and collect anything that went into the gas phase through dynamic headspace. Um, not only does it allow you to capture any um, components that may be contributing to the odor, but also you can get sensitivity down to the parts per trillion. Yeah. And that kind of sensitivity, I can't think of it, hardly any other techniques. Um, you know, even even LC triple quad, which is considered sort of the preeminent lowest detection tool out there in your arsenal, actually can't rival dynamic headspace if you blow enough gas across the surface and collect long enough. So, you know, it really becomes one of the most sensitive tools in, a, in an analytical chemist arsenal. And, um, you know, to me, that that sort of plethora of um, of tools for getting a sample into the mass spectrometer is just hugely beneficial for an investigative chemistry lab. And have you found the off order? I did. I did. So it was actually um, <laughs> a number of aldehydes. Uh, as I recall, it was benzaldehyde and uh, trans all that were actually the two compounds that were giving the bad odor. And uh, so it was okay. nice we were able to find those. Okay. Very interesting because uh, I've been in sales before doing this stuff here. And um, I was on um, at a beer and, and, and a brewery and we are talking about LC and we are talking about GCMS. And um, when we're talking about GCMS, I, I've only said uh, we have the, the, the nose, our ODP, which is the olfactometer uh, factor detector port. Mm -hmm. And I told him and said, yeah, with that, you can find out peaks which smells different than you expect that. And that was was the key point for him to say, "Hey, we need that." <laughs> that <laughs> Absolutely, was, that, was, that that was the point at, uh, for for him to say, "Yes, we we need the GCMS." Of course, we, of course, he needs a GCMS, and and then he needs the extra money for for the ODP, which is not so much in when when you think about a GCMS system with with all stuff on. But this was funny because it was a similar story, and and they they've, I think they found it for themselves uh, with with some help from from our analytical uh, department. So, yeah, interesting. So yeah, um, speaking of uh, odor issues, and this one's not really a problem, but it was something very interesting to me. Um, I'm uh, big into gardening. I love to garden, I love to grow things. And I, um, I'd i always just been curious, what is it that makes a rose smell so good? And uh, as a chemist, I just had to know. So. <laughs> um, so I decided to do some work internally, um, looking at uh, dynamic headspace and static headspace, uh, as well as I used even some twister and some solid phase micro extraction and, uh, and just tried to get a full picture of what is the chemistry of that smell that makes roses so good. And uh, it really was mm -hmm. curious to me because, um, you know, not often, not often do we get to really see uh, chemically what it is that we enjoy. And, um, one of the things I found was that it was actually quite a complicated array of chemicals that there was mm -hmm. not really just one chemical that we liked. Uh, what we actually enjoy is a diversity of chemicals. I think I detected over 26 different fragrance chemicals, um, all mixed together. And some of them had very unexpected odors. If you smelled them individually, you probably wouldn't like them very much. Um, one of them smells like pepper. One of them smelled, uh, kind of like lemons. Um, and 
one of them was fairly sweet, um, but it was it was that mixture of everything in the right proportions that gives us that odor we all like uh, when we smell a rose. And for those who are curious, um, it's uh, really dimethoxytoluene that was, in my opinion, the most important mm. uh, fragrance component in roses. Uh, that is the sweet uh, component, and it also was the most abundant um, component in the fragrance. Yeah, I have to Google that name. I never heard that because I'm German speaking and I have to, to, to recognize that and then I have to look what it is. So I can, I can make my cheap roses aroma for, for our friends here. Yeah, that <laughs> so one thank you very much to, for that hit. Yeah, that wasn't known to me either. I'm, I'm just about to look that, look that one up. Um, yeah, it, it's funny you wind up uh, with this catalog in your head of all these things that smell and the, the, the flavor, um, the, the flavor and fragrance industry, the fragrance people in particular, you know, when I've talked to our customers that do that work, yeah, to, to really replicate a fragrance, you've got to put a whole lot of different chemicals into it because it, because natural fragrances are complicated. But sometimes to save money, people will cut stuff out, <laughs> and that, that that's what that's where you get something that you know, like 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 I don't know. I'm, I really hate bad strawberry flavor because I can tell it's a bad strawberry flavor. <laughs> you know, I appreciate it when someone's really put a strawberry <laughs> extract in place. Yeah, it's definitely not easy to um, copy any of those flavors or fragrances is really a challenging area. And um, that, that kind of brings me to another problem we worked on. Um, we were hired by an, another uh, client who wanted to understand why a name brand perfume and a uh, cheaper perfume didn't behave the same. And uh, that was another one of those interesting analyses where, you know, both um had a pleasant aroma originally but it, the longer you waited the more the off-brand one wasn't that uh just didn't have the same longevity and it also was found to be more irritating to the customer's skin because uh, it dried out their skin and so uh, we did a bunch of characterization on that and ended up finding that the um although the nature of the fragrance components was actually the same in both the quantity of alcohol in the in the cheaper brand was higher and uh, that ended up causing oh. the skin to dry out and then um the mm -hmm. reason they had less potent fragrance and it lasted less was just a quantity issue they didn't have as much of the fragrance components because those were kind of more expensive components so um in the off brand they would kind of lower the good stuff and increase the cheap stuff <laughs> and that's how you would get mm -hmm. you know, the similar fragrance originally but you wouldn't get the potency that lasted over the lifetime of the product yeah, I, th I think that's a fairly common thing that happens. I've, I've, seen, I've seen it happen before. That's but, um, in, very, very amazing what what happened there, and uh, all that, that's. A, I think that's the reason why the, the the good perfumes are more, much more expensive than the cheaper ones you can buy in a. Um, I, I don't want to blame anybody, but uh, to buy somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With the Understood. Yeah. So I, I got a good open-ended question for you. Um, so you're in a lab with a bunch of stuff. Uh, I, was, I used to be in a lab with a bunch of stuff, like seven different GCMSs with all kinds of stuff in them. And these problems would show up at the desk. You know, what is your, what is your way of approaching this? If you want to give some advice to people or a couple of things that they should know, how do you begin? Because I think that's always the most challenging part. Once I have a, once I have a sample in a vial, I can take it from there. But, but how, how do I get to that point? What do you, what do, you do? Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it all starts with sampling. 
right? I mean, the very first challenge is mm -hmm. to get the right part of the sample in for analysis. And especially when you're doing failure analysis, oftentimes that can be one of the most challenging aspects. Um, you know, it might be that you're looking for something that is off colored. Um, you know, you, you may have a visual clue or you may not. So I think it all begins with good, mm -hmm. strong communication between those who've experienced the failure and the laboratory doing the work so that you can devise a sample prep approach. Um, in our labs, we use so many different things, but I mean, some of them are uh, things like microtomes where you might section a sample very thinly and grab only the relevant layer. Uh, it might be extraction where you're going to extract out the relevant component. Um, but definitely getting a sample into uh, or getting the portion of the sample that needs to be analyzed, isolated is very important. And then secondarily, you can never overestimate the importance of control samples in analytical chemistry. So mm. a lot of times, if someone is going to analyze for a defect, they'll just want to analyze the defect. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't do that. <laughs> if you're going to look for a <laughs> defect, you better analyze one that's good. Because the only way you can tell them apart most times is to see what good looks like and then see what bad looks like and contrast the two things. And, you know, money is well spent when it's spent on a good control you know, all of science is about controlling variables so that we can get to definitive answers to difficult questions. And I think that really happens through judicious choice of control experiments. Um, you know, the second aspect that I just would want to hit on for the listeners is choice of techniques. Um, we have 63 different analytical techniques we run at Geordie Labs. And the reason we do that, wow. why do we have 63 different tools? Um, it's because every problem is not a nail and shouldn't be hit with a hammer. You know, you really have to pick the right tool for the right problem. So, you know, in our laboratory, we have static headspace, dynamic headspace, we do twister, we do spemi, we do pyrolysis, we do liquid injection, we have high mass accuracy instrumentation, unit mass resolution instrumentation, flame ionization detection. You know, it's just a plethora because it all just depends on your problem and you know, I think one of the things that's challenging for people early on is how do I know which tool to pick? Um, I could go mm -hmm. run that sample on dynamic headspace or I could run it on static headspace. Why would I pick one or the other? I could go run it on paralysis or I could run desorption. Why pick one or the other? And, um, you know, every one of them has their niche and every one of them is better at certain things and worse at others. And so it really comes down to having the knowledge of which one is best for the problem at hand uh, in order to get you to the right tool. I'd agree with that. And then um, to your comment about controls. So going back to that paper example I gave, you know, so the engineers are like, okay, well, I, I told them I need some control samples. So the paper engineers go and say, okay, here's some retains, here's some paper for some different mills, and here's the problem sample. When you ran the controls all together, they were all different from each other. And then they were different from the unknown for the problem. So we ended up doing a lot of work with sample amalgamation. Sometimes it's called sample stacking now, where we would actually create a control out of several things. Because sometimes what you, it sounds like it's easy. We'll just get a control sample. Well, when there's enough natural variability in something, that control sample is a pain. And you end up having to create one. I remember this was back in the early 2000s. Um, so we, to, to do that sample amalgamation, we ended up using, I think it was EnviroQuant at the time, which is a, which is a, a very seldom used feature of ChemStation at the time, which now is, I think has evolved into things like Mass Profiler and other pieces of software to do all that. That's gotten a lot easier, I think, in, in terms of data reduction.
it's been a lot simpler. But yeah, the, the good control and having knowing what to compare to, because you're right, you can't just point to that peak at 11.63 minutes and say, oh, there's your problem. Now that that's just doesn't doesn't fly. It's not going to work that way. Yeah, absolutely true. I mean, sometimes when we're doing our analyses, we'll see 600 plus species. Um, you know, that's just a, a mass of peaks and any one of them could be the culprit causing the effect, or it could be a combination of different components causing the effect, kind of like we mm -hmm. talked about with the perfume. I mean, the smell is a function of all of them. Well, sometimes in a failure analysis, the failure occurs because of a combination of chemicals resulting in the problem. And so you really need to um, find a way to eliminate the noise and get the interesting data. One of the things we do in our laboratory a lot is statistical analysis for that purpose. And uh, we do use software packages like um, Profinder and Profiler, because of that, we can take a control set, we can take a sample set, and we can contrast them with statistical confidence intervals and know which of these features are truly unique. Because like you mentioned, Kurt, sometimes your control has moving levels of the various compounds. And, mm -hmm. you know, if something's 20% more, is that really a difference? Or is that my GCMS has 20% variability? Um, you know, so now you need to get into replicate injections and you need to get into statistics, excuse me, so that you can say that really is a meaningful difference. And from there, um, you can get to some answers that can actually help solve the problem. Hmm. Yeah. We should probably have a whole second podcast on, on how to do that. <laughs> so, uh, because the, the data analysis and production <laughs> side is, yeah, yeah, that's where I see the two weaknesses. You're right. The sample introduction has got to be right. You don't get it on column then you're done. And then understanding on the back end, the differences between things and whether what counts and what doesn't. Uh, it's gotten better. Um, certainly ODP is a, uh, the olfactory detector is a great way for, at least for odors to limit things down with human experience. But in the end, it ends up being a lot of peaks and a lot of data. And then we get high mass accuracy involved. It's a lot more data and it ends up being quite a challenge. So. No, I, I was just going to say, you know, it, it um, especially with the high mass accuracy data, I think the amount of time you spend interpreting data is now orders of magnitude greater than the time it takes to acquire data. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially if you can't just search databases, for instance. So completely agree. It, it really does come down to being able to handle the data set. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, we'll leave the door open for a larger discussion about uh, data reduction and high res data and all of that. And we'll come back to that at another time because that, that's a whole nother. I'm really jealous of that, too. I never had access to a QTOF when I was doing this work. So, so it's a nice, power, nice high powered instrument to be able to use to solve these kind of problems. So that'd be one other thing. So tell, tell everyone, what, what are you up to next? Where can they find you out there in the world? Uh, are you going to conferences? You got some papers coming out? What's going on? Yeah, definitely. Um, we do try to get out to the national meetings, uh, specifically as it relates to extractables and leachables. We're going to be at Pharma Ed uh, coming up here, uh, I believe, in June. Uh, we just finished uh, being at ENL 2022. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, those are great places to learn. We, we just really enjoy getting to interact with colleagues and see what's new and what's changing. And in the regulatory space, I mean, the upheaval never seems to stop. The uh, agency's expectations for extractables and leachables data has been changing rapidly, especially with the issuing of the new guidance uh, in 2020 for ISO 10 and 9318. Um, 
so you know there's a lot a lot going on and it really helps to be um out and talking with others about those things. And in addition to that, uh, we have uh, a new publication we just submitted uh, for peer review. I can't say much more, but uh, uh, we've been, had several publications. Um, yeah, we had several <laughs> publications in the last few years that I think have been fairly impactful in the ENL space. And and we're hoping to do that again with this one. Um, we're excited about uh, you know helping establish. Um, you know, some approaches for how to better simulate the biological environment. I'll say that much. Uh, and that, that I think, um, hopefully can help practitioners in, in getting, um, better estimates of what's really going into the body. So that, that paper is complete and is working its way through the process. Oh, looking forward to that. Make sure you uh, send me a reference, send us a reference. We'll post it for our listeners. Yep. Yeah, we, we, we can put it in the show notes when it's published. Um, and our, our listeners uh, know where to meet you when, when you go to the conferences. Uh, so probably you, you get some uh, knocks on the shoulders to say, hey, hello, I've, I've listened to you. Now I have a face in, in, in my eyes. <laughs> uh, no, not face in my eyes. That's German stupid, uh, speaking. Um, um, I, I can recognize the face. Okay. All right. I got. I remember I got what the you face. Mean, no, I don't. I got what you mean. Yeah. You, you got. Yeah, sorry, got so, so, sorry for that. Name, <laughs> is how we will say it sometimes. So put a face yeah. Put a face. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> that's that's the English expression for expression. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Really kind yes. of you just they just you know yeah, yeah, yeah. wherever they came from. <laughs> I, I just translated in my German. And that's how it works sometimes. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, if somebody has has a question and you have 63 analytic techniques in your lab and would like to let it solve by you, um, how can they reach you? Sure. Thanks. Um, I, I think the simplest way is to go to www.geordilabs.com. And uh, all of our services can be accessed through there. You can request a quote or, or submit a problem that we can help with. And um, so that's probably the best way to reach out to us. Mm -hmm. That's great. Are there other uh, link, LinkedIn, for example, or elsewhere uh, um, points where customers can reach you? Yes, we're on all the platforms, um, whether it's Facebook, LinkedIn, um, you know, Twitter, you name it, we're on all of those platforms and, and um, certainly happy to connect however is easiest, um, but would really love that opportunity to do so and would love the opportunity to help solve any problems we can. Sure. So, sure. Sounds great. So we, we, will, we will collect it, all that links and put it in the show notes. So everybody is running now or driving your car, um, then you can go to the show notes and click on one of these links to, to get in contact with Mark or even with us. and start a nice conversation and probably something happened and new business in every direction uh, goes in, in the future. Thank yeah. you. Or changing a column. If you're, if you're out there listening to this while you're changing a column, cleaning out the oil and mechanical pump, <laughs> all those things. <laughs> oh, that just brings back a lot of memories, most of them bad. <laughs> anyway, Mark, it's great to chance to talk to you as, as always. Um, uh, this whole non-targeted analysis world, um, it, 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 it really is a lot of fun. It's very challenging. It's great to talk to someone else who's had the same frustrations. Um, one of the guys uh, in, the, in the U.S. coastal office who did this work too uh, at one point in his life said that he'd come in in the morning, get out, a, get a cup of coffee and wait for the telephone to ring with the crisis of the day. And that's pretty much what this is. <laughs> it really <Yeah>. is. <laughs> 
It's true. There's certainly an aspect of that to it. And we've always enjoyed the, enjoyed the diversity. And most of all, just enjoyed helping people solve problems. I mean, there's nothing better at the end of the day than, than to help someone succeed and, uh, and get a problem resolved and get back to, to work, you know? Um, so it's, it's a mm -hmm. lot of fun and certainly something that I have found to be one of the passions of my life is this area of analytical chemistry and unknown ID. Yeah, yeah, um, me too. Definitely, that's that's what I recognize from you—the passion for for these questions. That's that's great. I, I can uh, for our listeners, we can see us here, and I can see your passion, and it's great to to talk to you. And from my side, a very a very big thank you uh, because it was fun to listen to you and, and fun to see what what happened. And yes, it, thank you very much for being here to be our uh, guest in our podcast and then uh, i will hand over to kurt and then i think mark you have the last words to say yep mark thanks again we're really really grateful um it's been not just for the podcast but all the stuff that we've talked about over time um helpful advice you give me on extractables and leachables and the other topics as well so it's been great it's been great thanks again well, thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Jan. I really enjoyed today. It was great to be with you guys. And thank you to the audience for listening today. And uh, certainly I uh, hope to see you guys again soon. Yep. Yeah, hopefully. Us too. Thank you very much. Have a nice time. You too. And bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.